Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this, the first episode of Alert for 2011, we'll be discussing the past year in politics with several members of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Media columnist Leslie Hughes will disclose the most censored stories of last year. We will hear about what collective members see as the most significant events and developments of 2010 and what we have to look forward to in the new year. And we'll also hear a perspective from David Hugel on the most inspirational books and films of 2010. But first, the alert headlines for the week of January 13, 2011. A new study ranks Canada dead last in an international comparison of freedom of information laws, a hard fall after many years being judged a global model in openness. The study by a pair of British academics looked at the effectiveness of freedom of information laws in five parliamentary democracies, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Canada comes last as it has continually suffered from a combination of low use, low political support, and a weak information commissioner since its inception, says the study. The Harper Conservatives first came to power in 2006 on an explicit promise to reform the Access to Information Act dramatically, but have largely failed to deliver after five years in power. At least three government departments are currently under investigation for alleged political interference in the release of documents, which has led to the resignation of a ministerial aide. More than 70% of Canadians will continue to work after retirement, says a survey conducted by Harris Decima. Those polled cited varying reasons for staying in the workforce, including more than a third who said they would simply need the money. A significant majority of 72% said one of their main goals in continuing to work would be to remain mentally active, while 57% wanted to ensure that they would be socially active. A total of 38% of all those surveyed said they would go on working out of financial necessity, while 5% said they were counting on a lottery win to look after them in their old age. More than half of this group said they had saved less than $20,000 in the past five years. Saskatchewan's top court has said marriage commissioners cannot use religion to say no to nuptials for same-sex couples. The Court of Appeal had been asked by the government to rule on a proposed provincial law that would have allowed commissioners to cite religious grounds in refusing to marry gays or lesbians. The proposed law was crafted after a conflict arose when Commissioner Orville Nichols, a devout Baptist, refused to marry a gay couple in 2005. The two men laid a discrimination complaint with the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission. The case went before the Human Rights Tribunal, which ruled in 2008 that Mr. Nichols discriminated against the couple. It found that as a public servant, he was obligated to marry them once they approached him. A Kelowna, B.C. RCMP officer who was caught on video kicking a suspect in the face has been suspended with pay. Constable Jeff Mantler has already been limited to administrative duties after he was accused of using excessive force during the arrest of a man in Kelowna. The incident happened late last week after police received a call about shots fired near the Harvest Golf Club. 
A freelance reporter who observed the arrest began video recording events as police converged on 51-year-old Buddy Tavares. In the video, Tavares is seen getting out of his truck and on police orders, falling to his hands and knees. Next, the RCMP officer kicked Tavares in the face. Tavares is said to be recovering from a brain injury suffered in a motorcycle accident last year. Several prisons in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec will be expanded as part of the Conservative government's five-year, $2.1 billion plan to increase capacity at federal institutions. The government sent several cabinet ministers and MPs across Canada to announce the 634 new beds at facilities in Edmonton, Gravenhurst, and Kingston in Ontario, Cohensville, Quebec, as well as at two sites on First Nations reserves in Saskatchewan. The new beds are to accommodate an expected growth in the prison population from tougher sentencing provisions brought in by the Conservatives, including limiting the amount of credit prisoners get for time served in custody before and during their trial. The Conservatives say the expansions will strengthen Canada's prison infrastructure, provide construction jobs in communities across Canada, and help keep dangerous criminals behind bars. Opposition MPs have accused the government of cutting funding for programs aimed at crime prevention and supporting victims of crime, despite a multi-million dollar cam advertising campaign to promote them. The U.S. Department of Justice has subpoenaed the internet company Twitter for personal information from WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and four other people tied to WikiLeaks, including Birgitta Jonsdottir, a member of the Icelandic parliament. The subpoena asks Twitter for all records and correspondence relating to their accounts, including apparently private direct messages sent through Twitter. The subpoena was issued on December 14th. Twitter was under a gag order until last week. It is unclear if Facebook or any other internet company received similar subpoenas. The government of Iceland has summoned the U.S. ambassador to discuss the subpoena. In Algeria... Three people are dead, hundreds more have been injured, and close to 1,000 have been arrested in protests that have engulfed the nation. The protests were triggered by a sudden hike in food prices. Staple items such as flour, sugar, and cooking oil increased in price by an average of 30% in recent days. The protesters, predominantly young Algerians, have also complained of housing shortages, failed economic policies, corruption, and a growing inequality gap. The rise in food prices in Algeria is consistent with the rise in food prices globally, which are currently at an all-time high. Riots and protests continued across Tunisia this week, with opposition sources saying as many as 24 people have been killed in clashes between police and youths angry over unemployment and a lack of political freedom. Tunisia's worst political violence in decades erupted after a 26-year-old street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi attempted to commit suicide by publicly setting himself on fire because he could not find a job. In response to huge rallies by college and high school students around the country, the education minister took the extraordinary step of cancelling all classes and shuttering all campuses. The armed Basque separatist group ETA has declared that a four-month ceasefire is now permanent. The Spanish government, however, said the offer was too little and came far too late. 
Spain's socialist government believes it has ETA on the run and has repeatedly said the only meaningful step the group can now take is to lay down arms definitively. The government lost faith in ETA's commitment to peace after it planted a bomb in a car park at Madrid's Barajas airport in the middle of the last ceasefire, killing two people. The group has historically fought for the independence of a Basque country that would be made up of four northern Spanish provinces and part of southwest France. A 65-year-old Palestinian farmer has been shot dead by the Israeli army near the border, doctors in Gaza say. Israel regularly fires on Palestinians who approach the fence's buffer zone, which is aimed at stopping explosives from being planted. Meanwhile, militants in Gaza fired three rockets into Ashkelon, the Israeli military says. No one was hurt. The violence comes a day after Gaza's Hamas rulers urged militant groups to stop rocket attacks on Israel. Violence on the Gaza-Israel border has escalated in recent weeks. On January 9th, Israel again carried out airstrikes in the north and south of the Gaza Strip. Last week, Israel shot dead two Palestinians it said were trying to cross over the border from Gaza. Israel withdrew its forces from Gaza in 2005, but continues to control its borders as well as Gaza's airspace and access to the sea. Scientists have found that people infected with H1N1 swine flu have an extraordinary immune response, producing antibodies that are protective against a variety of flu strains. The discovery has provided clues to how to make a universal vaccine. Some of the antibodies produced were protective against core elements critical for the virus to function, but which don't change as much as other regions of the virus. If these can be replicated in a vaccine, it could put an end to the yearly scramble to predict each winter's flu strains and rapidly mass-produce a vaccine. Those were the alert headlines for the week of January 13, 2011. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of January 13, 2011. A meeting at Ryerson University in Toronto will discuss the potential of unionized workplaces to become key centers of resistance to the trend of austerity measures in a time of economic crisis. Meet at the Student Campus Center at Ryerson on January 18th at 7 p.m. to listen to and engage with local 1005 Hamilton Steelworks who are facing a lockout and concession demands at U.S. Steel. The City of Toronto Municipal Workers from Local 416 who are bargaining with the new Ford administration, and the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, who are dealing with concession-laden bargaining talks. The launch party for Socialist Register 2011, The Crisis This Time, and David McNally's new book, Global Slump, The Economics and Politics of Crisis and Resistance, will be at the Lula Lounge in Toronto on January 20th. McNally will be speaking, and there will also be a panel discussion with Socialist Register contributors Greg Albo, Brian Evans, Sam Gindin, and Leo Panich. Doors open at 6 p.m. Dinner and drinks will be available. Eve Engler will be in Winnipeg on January 23rd to discuss how Canada lost its bid for a UN Security Council seat, and more generally, the effect of the Harper government on Canada's international reputation. The talk begins at 1.30 p.m. in the Carroll Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library. On January 30th, Engler will also be speaking in Castlegar, B.C. at the Castlegar Public Library at 3 p.m. and then at 7 p.m. in Nelson, B.C. at the TNT Theatre. 
All events have a $5 suggested donation. United Steelworkers Local 1005 and its 900 members and 9,000 pensioners are waging a battle on two fronts. They are at once fighting against foreign-owned companies like U.S. Steel, who are attempting to steal workers' futures by attacking their pensions, and the Harper government, who is attempting to hand public pensions over to private banks. The OFL, CLC, USW Local 1005, and Hamilton and District Labor Council are calling for a massive province-wide mobilization to stop U.S. Steel and other foreign-owned companies from wrecking our communities and stealing our futures. On Saturday, January 29th, meet at Hamilton City Hall at 1 p.m. and join the fight back. The Manitoba Eco Network will be hosting their Real Green Film Festival this year on February 4th and 5th in Winnipeg. Force of Nature, the David Suzuki movie, will be screened on the 4th at the Winnipeg Art Gallery as part of a fundraising effort for the Manitoba Eco Network. The following day, there will be a number of films being screened at the University of Winnipeg, along with plenty of discussion time devoted to the problems these films document. For more information, go to mbeconetwork.org. The 20th Annual Women's Memorial March for Missing and Murdered Women takes place in Winnipeg this year on February 14th. But from February 1st until the day of the march, there will be a number of commemorative events around the city. These include talking circles, art auction fundraisers, craft and poetry nights, movies, and music. A similar two weeks of events leading up to a march is taking place in Vancouver. For details on commemorative events and marches in cities across Canada, go to womensmemorialmarch.wordpress.com. And that's all for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of January 13th, 2011. As one year gives way to another, it's customary for mainstream media to look back on what they call the stories that were, meaning the ones that captured their attention and which they placed before the public. But like other independent media, Alert Radio believes it's important to look at the stories that weren't, the stories that never really saw the light of day, and where better to find those stories than the annual Project Censored Report, which offers us the top 25 censored stories of the year, supported by the Media Freedom Foundation and published by Seven Stories Press. With us on the line is Leslie Hughes. She is a former co-host of Alert Radio, and she's read this year's report and is here to talk about it. So welcome back to Alert, Leslie. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. You so. Bet. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, this, uh, the, the project censored, and and where they, uh, how and where they get these stories, where they come from? Yeah, it's kind of a neat system. They're actually produced by uh, student researchers who are interested in media issues on uh, about I think thirty-one university campuses internationally, and um, these students find or discover obscure stories that would appear to be important and, uh, and neglected. Now, the stories uh, that they choose and the lack of attention to them then have to be validated by a team, and that generally consists of uh, faculty volunteers at those campuses 
and then, of course, by uh, regional experts in the area that the story covers. So this year's stories of uh, missing stories started out at over 300 and then was whittled down to about 25, of which the top 10, you know, we have this fetish with the top 10 of things, um, gets the most of the limited attention that they get. Um, Project Censored has been appearing since the 1970s, and it's uh, very interesting and sad that this year it's dedicated to the memory of Howard Zinn, um, whose work I'm sure you know, an mm. intellectual activist extraordinaire who died recently. The People's History of the United States and stuff. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, could you, what, what is behind uh, the... The, these stories being censored or at least suppressed in the mainstream media. Any thoughts about that? You mean why why they're missing? Yeah. Why they're not there? Well, we we get a pretty good uh, idea, I think, and it, it's not uh, that the journal journalists everywhere are uniformly stupid, lazy, and uh, and evil because that would be relatively easy to rectify, right? You fire people and you keep on looking and hiring better ones. Um, it's just the big systemic problems, um, the bias that's imposed by a privately owned corporate news outlet, for example, uh, the fear that media venues have of offending the powerful and losing their access to information that's available to everybody else. And this is a, a biggie. After all, if you're going to go around telling awkward and ugly truths about the current war dominating the scene, you might not be invited to the next war, and and uh, that that could be um, fatal for profits. And for, for individual journalists, uh, it appears to be the fear of professional punishment if they refuse to self-censor and uh, refuse to um, stick to acceptable stories. So they... Uh they, they they internalize the values, so it's uh, when you talk about self censorship. This is uh, not necessarily a matter of some sort of you know iron fist or, or anything like that or a cudgel over your head. There's uh, a, a notion that if you want to get ahead, you have to uh, or or even stay where you are. You've got to conform to uh, the existing uh, attitudes. Exactly. Part of being savvy is knowing what stories will see the light of day, and which ones don't, and not wasting company time. Could you give a specific example of what you're talking about the, from the list? Well, there's a kind of pattern in the kinds of stories that uh, appear on the list, yes. There, there's a, a great diversity of topics. A quick check reveals stories as different as, and the number one story this year was the global plans to replace the American dollar as a currency of, of trade, which could have a huge impact on uh, not just the American but the global economy, to uh, privacy issues, uh, to threats on the Internet, to the actual number of lives that are lost to crippled health care systems, particularly in the U.S., and uh, interestingly, to the persistent unresolved issues around 9-11, which uh, many people thought would have disappeared by now. But uh, about 60% of the missing stories show up in five categories, and those five categories are the environment, health, the military, uh, corporate malfeasance, and the Internet. Mm. So if we have a look at one of those categories, uh, let's take the military category. Sure. Um, there's a variety of stories on that theme. 
the missing military news, as you can imagine, is extensive. And it won't seem new to people who are paying close attention all the time. But to the average consumer of news and information, you know, it's a, <clears throat> it's a big surprise. So, for example, one story is that the, uh, the American military is the largest single polluter on Earth, more than any other region or single country in the world. Its, um, its well-known dump-and-run policies are free of any regulation whatsoever and uh, are leaving pockets of permanent toxic dust and poisoned air all over the globe. There's uh, lots of interesting news about Afghanistan, um, which now apparently represents the largest military coalition in the history of the world. The, the first invasion that could be described as a truly global one, which of course starts the imagination spinning. Um, it's difficult enough for people in one country to understand why their country, as in the case of Canada, is in Afghanistan, much less you know, anybody who's able to go appears to be showing up there. So what, what is actually the, the real truth behind all of this? Um, and the corruption in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan goes much deeper than what has been discussed uh, so far. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, private contractors there, certainly American contractors, are uh, bribing the Taliban to ensure that their military products where they get, where they need to go, in short, they're funding the forces that they're fighting. Mm. So that's a that's a, uh, an important story for people you know who have ethical concerns about the war in Afghanistan, and of course uh, the Iraq story, um, the military story in Iraq continues um, to thrive. Uh, some will know that over a million Iraqis have been killed in the invasion of Iraq. About half of them directly by the U.S. military, which may not be quite as well known. Also that the rate of birth that defects uh, because of military pollution is, uh, is as, as high as one-third of newborns in some cities in Iraq. So in other words, Westerners are nowhere near understanding the human costs of that war. Uh, of course, you mentioned that the human cost, uh, that's, that's one of the, the serious impacts, uh, I guess, of... Uh, of having uh, this suppression or omission of information, are there any other uh, impacts that you can uh, think of that uh, would you, you undermine the the, the you public mean, good? Uh, the impact of of the missing stories. Of course, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the um, the folks who write the project censored material are actually very strong and thorough on context. So they point out that the first impact is a, is a lack of clarity in civil society about what's really happening, which makes it very, very difficult to hold anybody, much less political leadership, uh, accountable for anything. Okay, Leslie. Well, we're going to have to stop it there, but uh, I, I want to thank you very much for uh, bringing these stories to our attention, and um, we look forward to uh, hearing a little bit more in the Hopefully we'll get a little bit more transparency in the uh, following, uh, in the year to come. So That's a nice thought, Michael, but don't count on it. Okay, thanks a lot. Right. Leslie Hughes is a, a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective and writes the media column for that magazine. 
We're uh, on the line now with Saul Landau, filmmaker, broadcaster, and writer, and a member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective. Thanks for being with us today. So, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be back. Uh, in, in your view, what, uh, what do you see as some of the most important developments or events of 2010? Well, I mean, the most important events of 2010 are the ones that didn't happen. I think that uh, people had lots of expectations of President Barack Obama, and they even gave him a year, 2009, figured, okay, 2010, he'll shape up. And, uh, I mean, this is the man, after all, who said, yes, we can. But I think what people didn't hear was what he muttered to himself, but should we? And he I obviously decided that it was more prudent not to do than to do, and that's what he did. He did relatively little. Albeit the Democratic Congress passed a whole bunch of uh, legislation, which was essentially not bad legislation, but watered-down legislation. America finally got a health care bill, albeit it was far from what we wanted. It was disappointing. America got a jobs bill, but it wasn't all that we really needed. It was disappointed. Uh, America got, if, if you like, you know, some stimulus going into the economy to create green jobs. But again, it was too little and a little bit late. So again, it was disappointing. And we waited for something to happen. The Middle East this was going to be the year when Obama was going to put the pressure on the Israelis, force them to the table, and get a real uh, settlement out of the Middle East. Again, disappointment. Uh, he didn't get anywhere with the Korean Peninsula. He didn't get anywhere with Iran. So if you look around, and, and his promises to Latin America were, I should say, beyond disappointing. He didn't do a damn thing. Uh, well, I'm sorry. He did do something. He supported the illegitimate government that grew out of the coup d'etat in Honduras and then tried to make other Latin American governments put the kosher stamp on that ridiculously, how should I say it, pork-ridden government. So uh, disappointment, disappointment, uh, followed by more disappointment. That is for those people who had illusions. And I must admit that I was one of them who had celebrated the election of Barack Obama. So and, what... Uh, today, what do you, uh, you know, I'd still rather have him than Sarah Palin, but what more could I say? What do you, what do you see happening in 2011? Well, in 2011, uh, I think the rich will do extremely well. Their profits will go up, and their taxes will go down. The poor and members of the lower middle class and even the middle class will do badly. They will not get more jobs, they may get less jobs. Because General Motors, for example, which got bailed out by the U.S. government so that, not just so that we would save our, uh, once our finest and largest company, but so that they would also create jobs. Well, they did create jobs, but most of them were in China, where they make their cars and where they sell some cars. Uh, General Motors' profits went up, but not because they're putting American workers to work. The same thing, General Electric laid off thousands and thousands of workers, but invested $2 billion in Brazil to build a new factory. So, uh, you know, definitely these people created jobs, but not in the United States. Now, the companies are making more money, 
you know, a general motor, a welder, a skilled welder in a General Motors assembly plant back in the old days was making 35 bucks an hour back in the early 1980s. The equivalent welder now in Puebla, Mexico, earns maybe less than $35 a day. So this is what General Motors did. You know, at one time, Charlie Wilson, who was the CEO of General Motors, and he was up to be Secretary of Defense under Eisenhower back in 1953, and he was being uh, questioned by a Senate panel. And a senator asked him, don't you think there's some conflict of interest, you being former CEO of General Motors and now being Secretary of Defense of the United States? And Wilson said, well, the equivalent of what's good for General Motors is good for the country, and what's good for the country is good for General Motors. You know, you could have even made some argument for that in those days, because General Motors also generated jobs in the glass industry, in the steel industry, in the aluminum industry, in the upholstery industry, in the rubber industry, and so on and so forth. Manufacturing was the center of the American economy. It is no longer so. Do and you so what's good for General Motors now may be good for China. Do you and see that is the irony uh, of 2010. And what's coming in 2011, it will be better for China and worse for American workers. The Do American you... worker, the American poor are being picked on. Do you uh, see any being, signs of, uh, you know, of, of resistance to, the, to this kind of policy direction? Uh, I don't see any organized resistance. I see signs of craziness, and I don't know if it's a response to this or not. You know, everywhere in the world, you know, there's some lunatic who grabs a gun or some weapon and kills lots of people. This happens, you know, like in France once every 10 years. In the United States, it happens every month. And uh, is this a response to the stress, to the conditions of our life? Well, we don't really know. the fact is, we're living in the most stressed-out country in the world, I think. I know I live here. And, uh, you know, how, how many of these assassins are walking around among us with uh, ability to buy automatic Glock weapons that can mow down a whole bunch of people? Which adds, of course, to the stress. Just the fact that we know that. Um, so what do we look for? More dangerous times as more people suffer? That is, the poor will get poorer. And they will get more picked on. Uh, you know, the Republicans have vowed they're going to cut the budget. Well, where are they going to cut? They're going to cut a little bit off the military, but not too much. But they are, the other two areas are basically Social Security and Medicare. Have fun. You know, uh, you know the, there was a panel, the, the deficit panel, it was called, that was supposed to make recommendations. And the recommendations was that they cut Medicare and other services to senior citizens. And I was thinking, you know, where is the good news in this report? You know, maybe it said death is near. Well, th- thanks for your time. That's about all the time we have today. But thanks for speaking with us. That was Saul Landau, filmmaker, broadcaster, and writer, and member of the CD Editorial Collective. Joining us now is David Hugel the newest member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective and a graduate student at York University. Hi, David. Thanks for being here with us. Hello. All right. So, of the books and films you read and saw in 2010, which ones provoked you or inspired you the most? Um, Well, definitely this Greek film I saw called Dogtooth. Um, 
which is a really twisted and delicious tale about uh, a father who's raising his three children. And uh, but you know, by the time we meet them, they're all teenagers. Um, but he raises them in complete isolation from the outside world. So they live in this kind of pretty regular middle class home um, that's walled off from the outside world. And uh, in this kind of little micro world or incubator or whatever, um, the father's able to sort of cultivate his kids in, in very strange ways. Um, and he raises them with, uh, with sort of an, an entirely alternative cosmology and an entirely alternative way of understanding how the world works. So this is like some really stark examples of this. Uh, for example, the kids are convinced um, that this neighboring dog is a, is a beast, which um, if, they, if they step outside of the walls, will devour them. Um, and uh, these planes that are constantly passing overhead, they're convinced that they are these um, something entirely different. Anyway, uh, there's this really memorable scene where the kid sort of drops a something, a ball or something outside of the uh, outside of the fence, and the father has to drive out to get it because, of course, you can never you can never step out outside. Um, and so he just you know he drives and backs up. Anyway, what I love about this film and why I think politically minded people would love it is that it's this really um, interesting allegory, I think, for the ways that we sort of internalize uh, political power or the way that domination becomes sort of natural in our own minds, reproduced as, you know, sort of basic common sense, taking for granted assumptions about the way things are. Um, and it's really interesting. It's a really interesting kind of meditation on how, uh, how these lessons can be taught uh, by authority and then internalized. But more than anything, and the reason that I think anyone would enjoy it is that it's super twisted and <laughs> highly entertaining and definitely the single weirdest thing I saw in 2010. And so I encourage everyone to get a copy of Dog Tooth as soon as possible. Dog Tooth. Dog Tooth. Yeah, and this is this is a film from Greece? You said it's from sorry, Greece? Sorry, can you say that one more time? You said that it's from Greece, this film? I, I did. It's okay. from Greece, yeah. And obviously there are very interesting things happening in 2010 in Greece. So... Um, I think it's I think it's appropriate. So, is there anything that you're looking forward to in the new year? Um, well, I'm looking forward to a hearty fight against a, a very unfortunate mayor, which is just which is, who has just been elected um, in Toronto. I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that revolt will be in the winds um, because he got all kinds of nasty plans for this city so uh so i'm looking forward to a, to a good fight in in 2011 well thanks for speaking with us today david on the line with us was david hugel the newest member of the canadian dimension editorial collective joining us now from toronto is greg albo member of the canadian dimension Elect- editorial collective and a professor of political political economy at york university Hi, Greg. Thanks for being here. Hi there, Ashley. Okay, so let's get right to it. What, uh, in your view, is the single most important development or event that occurred in 2010? I think it was the conversion of the financial crisis that had unfolded from uh, 2007 to 2009 into uh, a crisis of the public sector and uh, sovereign debt uh, across 2010. Uh, with it opening up with uh, very important battles over public sector spending 
and austerity cuts, uh, particularly in, in, in Europe, but uh, also spreading a, across North America and other parts of the world. Okay, so what, what do you see happening with this issue in 2011? Well, I think uh, uh, one has to kind of break down the world. In, in Europe is in very difficult situation for the coming year and will likely have negative growth rates uh, again. Uh, in the key centers where the, where the public sector crisis has erupted, uh, uh, either due to the weakness of competitiveness of those economies or uh, due to the way the banking sector was uh, 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 mishandled uh, and the debt was dumped into the public sector, uh, all those countries are facing worse situations. In Greece, uh, public sector, uh, total public sector debt is expected to increase from over 130% to about 150%. In Ireland, uh, it's about 90-odd percent. It's expected to go up to about 105 to 110%. Uh, it's a similar development that we'll see in the coming months in Portugal, uh, Spain, uh, possibly uh, Belgium as well. Uh, and it's encompassing all of, of Europe. All of Europe is, is going to have uh, deeper, uh, 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 more significant struggles over public sector uh, uh, cutbacks over the coming year as public sector debt rises. It's a little bit different in, in uh, North America in that uh, the growth rates aren't expected to be negative here as they are in Europe. Uh, they'll be marginally higher. Uh, there is some particular strength in the American economy that might even push American growth rates up to 2%. Uh, and the American, uh, Amer the American federal government is, is massively going into uh, uh, stimulus again, uh, partly from uh, uh, the continuation of the initial Obama fiscal stimulus, but also from the quantitative easing project that is being put by the Federal Reserve, uh, the $600 billion of, 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 of monetary policy stimulus. And the corporate tax cuts and, uh, and personal tax cuts that have been kept in the, in the coming budget. So the U.S. Is, in a, in a, is undergoing a lot of fiscal stimulus, which will uh, limit some of the public sector debt restraint there, and we'll, that will spill over into Canada. But at the subnational level in both countries, there's a, and particularly at the city level, there's going to be major struggles over, over public sector cuts. Uh, you see that uh, in North American cities across the board over, uh, you know, school cuts, uh, garbage cuts, public transit cuts, and so on. Uh, in Asia, it's a little bit more uncertain in that, uh, what will occur. There's, there's still strong growth rates in many of the core countries, uh, uh, China, Indonesia, uh, India. But uh, because of higher inflation rates and, uh, uh, and, and to some extent the debt buildup in the property, in, in property bubbles in uh, Asia, there's also likely to be some restraint there that is going to lead to some adjustment of public sector uh, spending as well. So I think in 2011 uh, the key issue will be this fight back and struggle over, over public sector cuts around the world. Well, thanks for speaking with us today. That's about all the time that we have. Uh, that's Greg Albo joining us from Toronto, member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective. Hi, this is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. And this week's show is essentially a really eclectic collection of really well-written political songs by really excellent writers. The first song 
is a song called Spirit of the Revolution. I've never heard this song before this past weekend, and I discovered it, and I'm bringing it here for you. spirits of the revolution we will not fit in and we will not give in we who are the spirits of the revolution we will not fit in and we will not give in we who are coming to understand more of the horrors we will not fit in and we will not give in we who are indelibly bourgeois and refuse to be so are increasingly aware. We who are unleashing powers move toward life. We who experience tragedy in the unending cycles of destruction. We who gamble with our lives. We who are the spirits of the revolution. We will not fit in and we will not give in. We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who believe in the flowering of freedom We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are thirsty for greater knowledge We who walk the night this side of desperation we who are thirsty and looking for better ways to proceed We who tremble then proceed We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are wise enough to continue learning we will not fit in And we will not give in We who find brothers and sisters in the struggling peoples of this earth We who are coming to understand more of the mysteries We who are coming to see more of the reality We who have met the beast within ourselves We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in we who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are able to go beyond our anger We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are able to go beyond our awe We who are not content to admit despair We who care, we who burn, we who struggle with the knowledge that the path is long We who are the spirit of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We whose radiance is a wonder in life We will not fit in And we will not give in we whose anger cannot be conquered We whose love cannot be bound 
We who are singers of the new morning We whose tears have freely flowed We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who have come to understand something of the horrors We will not fit in We will not give in We who are indelibly bourgeois and refuse to be so are increasingly aware We who are unleashing powers within ourselves move toward life We who experience tragedy in the as yet ending cycles of destruction We who gamble with our lives We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We who are the spirits of the revolution We will not fit in And we will not give in We will not fit in And we will not give in Christina was found yesterday The ghost of not knowing still leads her away Sarah Christina is missing In El Salvador, that's the way that it is Say what you feel, you run all the risks Of ending up on the casualty list Lost Never forgotten. Los desaparecidos, los desaparecidos, los desaparecidos, los desaparecidos, los paradiso covered in mist. Friends start acting like strangers. Beware of the dangerous Judas kiss that carries you away. If you stand with the Union, you're taken up wrong. If you stand with a Romero, they'll block out the sun as the Air Force lands in your face with a gun and carries you away. Los desaparecidos. Los desaparecidos, los desaparecidos, los desaparecidos. The dirty face of a dirty war on the streets of San Salvador. There's no fandango in here anymore. They've taken it all away. This couldn't be paradise free of the spell Yankee dollar bills from hell Keeping the jailers and generals well While the innocent ones go missing Los desaparecidos Los desaparecidos Los desaparecidos Los desaparecidos 
That was Irish folk singer Christy Moore singing The Disappeared about the struggle of people in El Salvador. And before that, Larry Estridge was Spirit of the Revolution. One of my very favorite singers in the whole country is a Scottish immigrant by the name of Enoch Kent, who is now 79 years old and who's still traveling Canada's highways and byways singing folk songs. And one of the things I really like about Enoch is he's a real down-to-earth, working-class person, and this song really reflects both his philosophical outlook Irish folk singer and just who he is. It's a great song. And here's Enoch Kent singing, I didn't raise my son to be a soldier. I didn't raise my son to be a soldier. I raised him up to be my pride and joy. Why should he put a rifle to his shoulder to kill another mother's pride and joy? Why should he fight in someone else's quarrels? It's time to throw the bombs and guns away. There would be no war today if everyone would say, I didn't raise my son to be a soldier. I didn't raise my son to be a soldier, to fighting in some far-off foreign land. Well, he may get killed before he's any older For a cause that he will never understand Why should he fight some other rich man's battles While they stay at home and while their time away? Let those with most to lose fight each other if they choose For I didn't raise my son to be a soldier I didn't raise my son to be a soldier, to go fighting others all around the world. If God required to prove that boys were bolder, they'd have uniforms and guns when they were born. Why should we have wars about religion, when Jesus came to teach us not to kill? Why can't Muslims and Hindus live the way they choose? No, I didn't raise my son to be a soldier. That was Enoch Kent singing that wonderful song, I Didn't Raise My Son to Be a Soldier. It really is kind of appropriate at the moment, eh? One of the things about folk music and politics and the way they kind of fit together very very often, not occasionally, is that there's a real sense of, of hope and uh, an exp- there's an optimism about folk music, even when things are a little bit crazy. And here are a couple songs I really like, not because of their political line, but just because of the heart of the songwriter here. Here is Teresa Healy and Tom Jurovich singing Storm About Us. And the wind blows through 
march it on down, 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 march it on down. Will they sell your smile for a profit? Take our schools just to line their pockets, trade in water. They think they can take it all, and we'll just stand by. So strike it on down, strike it on down, strike it on down. Strike it on down, strike it on down, strike it on down.
Big corporations got no home, and the men on the hill got hearts of stone. They worry my life like a dog with a bone. When will the times roll? Sing about these hard times. Sing all about these hard old times. Sing about these hard times. When will the times roll? They moved my job to Mexico, where children slave. That was Peggy Seeger singing Singing About the Hard Times, and before that, Teresa Healy and Tom Jurovich, The Storm About Us. And that's it for this week, folks. See you all next week on the radio. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days, prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.